Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Laura Salt. Bringing you the latest science news this week, Amira Senthalingam and Ben Valsler. Coming up, how nanobees can swarm on cancer cells. By attaching the venom protein, which is called melitin, to tiny spherical nanobees and injecting them into mice suffering with cancer, researchers at Washington University saw tumours either stop growing or actually shrink. Why humans have always been playing with fire. Human ancestors used fire to get the best out of stone tools as much as 164,000 years ago. Plus, we find out that speech is not the only thing lost in translation. East Asian people seem to make significantly more errors when categorising expressions of disgust and fear for both the same and other race pictures. Fear was consistently confused with surprise, while disgust was confused for anger. That's all on the way. Venom found in bee stings could be used as a targeted therapy against cancer, according to a report in the Journal of Clinical Investigation this week. By attaching the venom protein, which is called melitin, to tiny spherical nanobees and injecting them into mice suffering with cancer, researchers at Washington University saw tumours either stop growing or actually shrink. Now, melitin is a small protein and it works by attaching to the cell membrane and forming pores in the cell. And it's thought that tumours will not be able to develop resistance against this kind of attack. But how do the nanobees know which tissue to attack? Well, tumours are known to concentrate certain materials due to an effect called enhanced permeability and retention. And this occurs because solid tumours often have leaky blood vessels. This means that the nanobees will build up in the tumour tissue, which targets the cancer directly. Also, adding extra targeting agents, things that are attracted to developing blood vessels, for example, further increases the nanobees' affinity for tumours, and it was actually shown to reduce the proliferation of precancerous skin cells by 80% in mice. So if the bee sting venom is so good at killing cells... Why aren't normal bee stings more of a problem? Well, normally, melitin is broken down by our normal biological processes, but by packaging the protein with the nanobees, it was protected from this attack and it was also kept away from healthy tissue. The core of the nanobees themselves is actually made of a chemical called perfluorocarbon. That's an inert compound that's used in artificial blood. Each one is about six millionths of an inch in diameter, which is small enough to travel through the bloodstream and attach to the desired cell membranes, but it's actually large enough to carry thousands of active compounds. Now, you said it reduces the growth of precancerous skin cells. But what about full-blown tumours? Well, these nanobees have been tested against two different kinds of cancerous tumours in mouse models, breast cancer cells and melanoma tumours, that's skin cancer. After the nanobees were introduced, the growth of the breast cancer tumours slowed by nearly 25% and the size of the melanoma tumours decreased by 88% relative to untreated tumours. According to Samuel Wickline... Melitin is a workhorse. It's very stable on the nanoparticles and it's easily and cheaply produced. Now, this shows great promise, but it is early days yet and we don't yet know if it will prove to be a viable clinical application. However, every method that we do find that can help treat cancer adds to our arsenal and this one really does have a sting in the tail. Now, moving back in time, it's been revealed that our early ancestors liked to play with fire. 
That's right, human ancestors used fire to get the best out of stone tools as much as 164,000 years ago, according to new research published in the journal Science. Kyle Brown from the University of Cape Town and an international team of colleagues looked at excavations from multiple sites in South Africa, including Pinnacle Point on the south coast, specifically for tool fragments made from silcrete rock. Now, silcrete is a finely grained rock that's traditionally thought of as being highly workable in its natural state, and silcrete tools are known to have been made in Australia as well as in Africa. However, Brown and his colleagues tried to make tools from this stuff and found it very difficult to shape in a consistent way. Indigenous Australian nappers are known to have used fire to treat the silcrete, and this changes the crystal structure of the rock, making it much more workable. How could they tell that the stone had been heat-treated? Well, using a number of archaeological techniques, archaeomagnetism, thermoluminescence and gloss analysis, the researchers compared excavated tool fragments with raw or heat-treated samples that they'd just got themselves. Heating a material will change its magnetic properties, especially if it's heated to above the Curie point, which is the temperature at which a material loses its magnetic ability. Heating to less than this temperature still leaves a predictable change in the magnetic properties, and this seals the thermodynamic history into the rock. Likewise, this history can be seen through the amount of light emitted on heating, because heating allows electrons to be released from a mineral, thus producing thermoluminescence. Over time, the minerals are exposed to radiation and build up more potential luminescence. Now, high temperatures can effectively reset this thermoluminescence, which can tell you when the material was heated and to what temperature. These methods confirm that all of their collected samples had been subject to heat treatment. Now, gloss analysis is a measure of how shiny the surface of the rock is, and this confirmed that the tools had been shaped after they were heated, even those that were found to be 164,000 years old, and certainly in the tools that were formed 72,000 years ago. Could the rocks not just have been caught in a forest fire? Wouldn't that have the same effect? Well, it would probably make the same changes in the rock, but further analysis of the actual archaeological site showed no evidence of extensive fire, so that suggests that these were intentionally exposed to high temperature rather than caught out in a wildfire. So it was definitely done on purpose, but now why is this important? What can it tell us about our ancestors? Well, the importance of heat treating is that it allows you to use local poorer quality materials and still get the performance of higher quality tools. This shows a huge intellectual leap from the use of fire just for heat and light and this cognitive change is actually not very well understood. From this data it seems that our ancestors were developing the ability to use fire as an engineering tool in South Africa as much as 164,000 years ago and they were definitely doing so around 71,000 years ago and at the same time, there's widespread evidence of increasingly complex symbolic behaviour. This seems to have allowed the development of advanced tools in Africa before their development in the rest of the world. And being able to make the best of local materials could well have been a behavioural advantage when migrating up through Eurasia. Now, also this week, Ben, it's been discovered that as well as language, our facial expressions could get lost in translation. That's quite right. It's not just the spoken language that can make communication in foreign countries difficult. It seems that Easterners and Westerners look for different facial cues as well. It's often assumed that facial expressions form a sort of universal language, but now Roberto Caldara at the University of Glasgow and his colleagues report in the journal Current Biology that this may not be the case, as Eastern observers look for their cues in the eyes, but not in the full face. 
Now, how did they determine that? Well, Caldera and colleagues recorded the eye movements of Western Caucasian and East Asian volunteers as they performed an expression recognition task. This consists of identifying the emotion in a number of pictures showing one of seven potential expressions. Happy, surprise, fear, disgust, anger, sadness and a neutral face. Volunteers were shown images of both same race and other race people. East Asian people seem to make significantly more errors when categorising expressions of disgust and fear for both the same and other race pictures. Fear was consistently confused with surprise, while disgust was confused for anger. But why would they do that? Well, to find out why it may be, they actually mapped the areas where each volunteer's gaze had been directed while evaluating each image. By mapping the location, frequency and in what order the volunteer looked at each part of the image, they were able to not only find the hot spots that received the most attention, but also spot patterns such as looking at the right eye, then the left, then back to the right. And so what did they find? East Asian volunteers paid far more attention to the eyes than they did to the mouth, especially in the expressions that they most often got wrong. Caldara then went on to break down each image for analysis in an attempt to objectively determine whether sampling the eyes and neglecting the mouth would lead to confusion. Sampling the eye region, they developed what's called a pattern of confusions that actually showed surprise would be most likely mistaken for fear. Sampling from the mouth region of the images gives a very different pattern of confusion where fear and surprise are clearly distinguishable. So by fixating their gaze on the eye area and neglecting the mouth, East Asian volunteers were more likely to succumb to this confusion without the correcting effect of observing the mouth. Now, these results not only indicate that Western and Eastern observers genuinely perceive emotions differently, but also suggest that facial expressions, and especially those used in these sorts of studies, are not universal signs of human emotion. The authors now hope to see how different aspects of culture and ideology affect the results. But meanwhile, we should just buy a good phrase book if we don't want to get lost in translation. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Finally for this week, more revelations about monkey mimicry. That's right, capuchin monkeys prefer humans who imitate them over those that do not, according to research published in Science this week. We often unintentionally imitate the body postures, gestures and mannerisms of our social interaction partners, according to Annika Porkner from the National Institutes of Health Animal Centre in America, who led the study along with colleagues in the US and Italy. When someone imitates us, we like them more, we empathise with them more, and we're even more likely to be generous to them. Imitation clearly plays an important role in interpersonal relationships and social existence, and it's thought that the ability to make strong social bonds gives you an advantage over social rejects. If that's the case, then it could also be true for non-human primates, such as these capuchin monkeys. To determine if this is the case, Porkner and colleagues tested whether capuchins recognise imitation and if this leads to a change in their social interactions. How did they go about doing that? Did somebody have to act like a monkey? Well, to determine if the monkeys could tell the difference between somebody directly imitating them and somebody just doing something similar, both the monkeys and the experimenters were given a ball to play with. 
One experimenter then imitated the capuchins directly, and the other just played with the ball in a way similar to normal capuchin behaviour. The monkeys paid significantly more attention to the imitator, indicating that they are in fact sensitive to this imitation. In another experiment, the monkeys chose to be closer to the imitator than a non-imitating experimenter, which is another indication of a developing affiliation. Knowing that the capuchins responded positively to imitation, a token exchange experiment was set up. Now this relies on social interaction between monkey and experimenter because the monkey must present a token in exchange for some food. The monkeys were significantly more likely to approach the experimenter who had imitated them, despite having shown no preference before the experiments began. So they certainly seem to like being imitated, but what does this mean for us? According to Porkner, these experimental results demonstrate that imitation significantly affects the behaviour of capuchin monkeys and warrants further study to see if similar effects are seen in the wild. As imitation is seen far more often in humans than it is in other ape species, observing the effects in non-human primates could help to understand how imitation has acted as a social glue throughout our evolution, and it could be an underlying mechanism of protective social behaviour in all primates. In a related Perspectives article, Joseph Call and Melinda Carpenter explained that imitation could be communicating a different type of social information, such as the dominant structure. Now, if this is the case, the experimenter who's imitating the primates may make himself or herself more approachable not through building an affiliation, but by a reduction in social status. The capuchins may then appear to be affiliated merely because they're less fearful. Either way, this offers a tantalising glimpse into our world as the ape who apes. That's all we have time for in this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Mira Senthalingham and Ben Valson. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Laura Salt. If you enjoyed this week's Newsflash, why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment to try at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com, and we'll be back with another roundup for you next week. The Naked Scientist's Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.